0: Bible up and give you a Bible answer for everything that we've done this morning and everything that we're going to do. This morning, we're turning our attention to Jesus, our advocate. You know, when I go to a, uh, a mechanic, there's a certain amount of trust that I have with that mechanic that as I tell him, there's an unkity, unkity, unkity sound underneath my hood that he's going to be able to correctly diagnose and be also be able to correctly fix whatever's going on that's making that unkity, unkity, unkity sound. That's as technical as I can get with, with regard to what's going on with my car. When I go to a doctor and I tell the doctor, listen, I'm having pains here. I'm having these symptoms or I'm having these things. We trust and we uh, have a certain amount of trust that we have with that doctor that he's going to be able to correctly diagnose what's going on with us and also be able to treat us with the correct amount of, uh, of care that needs to be done so that we can make a full recovery, when we go to different places and we ask for counsel and we ask for somebody to represent us and to, uh, to, to take our case and things that we don't necessarily understand about, there's a certain amount of trust that we have that they're going to be able to correctly and caringly take care of us. If we were going to look for a lawyer Again, there's a number of things with regard to the law and with regard to uh, the procedures that I don't understand and that I'm going to trust with regard to a lawyer to be able to take care of those aspects I followed for the last several weeks the Daryl Brooks trial. I don't know how many of y'all have noticed that. That was the one that has gone on for about the past month or so. But he was the one that was the Waukesha Christmas parade killer. He ran his car right through the middle of a Christmas parade. This man asked to represent himself in court. And it's been a painful, painful thing to watch and him trying to figure things out but also wanting the judge to declare a mistrial and there's a number of things that have gone on in that trial that you're just shaking your head at and going I don't know why he would ever choose to do such a thing. We have a certain amount of trust with those things. What does it mean that Jesus is our advocate? We have a certain amount of trust and yet Sometimes with a mechanic, with a doctor, with a lawyer, there may be nagging suspicions in the back of our head that this is a person that doesn't have my best interest at heart. You ever felt like that, that way about a mechanic? That here's somebody that's just trying to make some money and oh yeah, they're going to tell me the unkity, unkity, unkity is a new transmission when really all it is is a loose muffler or something like that. And maybe the doctor is trying to 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 uh, to pad his resume and be able to say I've worked on this case, I've worked on this case, and he's more interested in treating the case than he is in treating you as a person. You ever have that nagging suspicion? It's the reason why we go and we get second opinions about certain things, isn't it? The question is, is that when John tells us Jesus is our advocate in Second First John chapter two and verse one, the question might be nagging in the back of my head to say, what makes me think I can trust Jesus? Why do I think that I can trust him with my soul salvation based upon what John is saying? And the purpose for 1 John is saying you can take this to the bank. You can fully trust in what you know about Jesus and what you receive through the gospel. You see, 1 John is the book that we're going to be in this morning. And it hangs its hat really upon two things given there in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, my brethren, I write these things to you. I appreciate a writer that says, this is the reason why I'm writing what I'm writing. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that, number one, you may not sin. There are two principles. Number one is, John says, don't sin. People that follow God should not sin. And he's going to define what that means based upon the end of chapter one and also one verse in chapter two. Notice. Because he's going to qualify these by, if we say that. Notice chapter 1, verse 6. There are some people that say, I have fellowship with God. And John says, you're walking in darkness. He says, in that instance, you don't really follow and practice the truth. You're sinning by doing that. You can't say that you have fellowship with God who in in whom is the light and and is there no darkness at all he said and then you're going to walk in darkness we can't sin by saying that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness notice two verses later in verse eight he's going to say that there are some people who say I don't have any sin I am 100 percent not in need of repentance All of my behavior, all of my thoughts, all of my words are completely in line with the character and with the nature of God. Nothing in my life needs to change. John says, that's not the case. That's not the case. People that follow God shouldn't have that attitude. And notice, down two verses later in verse 10, some people just outright say, I've never sinned. I am flawlessly perfect in my behavior, in my conduct, and my thoughts. I've never sinned, nor will I ever sin. He says, you're a liar. And in fact, you make him a liar because you don't practice the truth. People that follow God shouldn't sin. Look one verse into chapter 2. Some people are saying, I know God, and yet I'm not going to follow anything that he says in his word. He says, that's not a recipe. Any of these four things that he's going to list where we're saying things about God to God and about our life and our, our conduct and our fellowship and we can't say those things and have a blessed assurance that we've got exactly what we need to have. John says, there's an attitude that we need to adopt as people that want to follow God. You know, there have been people that I've studied with in the past that said, you know, Andy, I would have become a Christian, but I don't know enough. Andy, began, but I'm not strong enough. Andy, I would become a Christian, but I don't have enough, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not confident I can live a sinlessly perfect life. And let me tell you something, I can't either. But what John is saying here is we don't need to make a habit of making sin part of our daily activity as if it doesn't matter what God thinks. That's the first hat that John hangs his assurance on, that God says those people that follow him should not sin. The second aspect of this is the rest of verse 1. My brethren, I write these things, or little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but I appreciate the but. It's a contrast. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If we do sin, even if what we don't want to make our lifestyle and our practice about, we know that there's somebody who's arguing and who's pleading our case, and John says you can put your full faith in him and the job he's doing before the throne of God. But the question is, we have to de- define this morning, is what is an advocate? What's an advocate? It's not a word that you think of very often. word advocate is just simply a word that means somebody that pleads on behalf of or to argues in favor of. If we're going to use it in, uh, in a noun form, it's a person who pleads for the cause of somebody else. Somebody might define advocate as a defender or a representative or a champion of somebody else's cause. And you're looking at those words and you're saying that's what an advocate is according to what our, our, uh, uh, our world defines. But the question is, how does that help me? I want you to think this morning just briefly about this. This is a more modern courtroom scene. And if you go into a modern courtroom, generally what you're going to see is as you enter into the back doors, you're going to see probably boxes upon boxes upon boxes of uh, um, legal boxes that are stacked on the side. And generally that's the evidence that's going to be presented there in the case. And you're going to come to a part where there's a separation there between the gallery, the people that are viewing, and also the people that are actually involved in in the trial, And as you go past that, you are only going past that if you are actively involved in that trial. And here's the question. Before God, you and I are going to have to stand one day giving an account. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12 says, there's a trial date coming for you. And there are things that you're going to have to answer for based upon your conduct and your behavior. And the question is, who's going to stand with you during that time? Is there any lawyer that's going to be able to accurately represent who you are and accurately represent the elements of the case and get you to to have a favorable response from the judge? Because that's ultimately what we want when we go into court, isn't it? Nobody wants to go into court saying, man, I hope he gives me 20 years to life. Well, when we go and we stand before God... There's a question, do we sin, have we sinned, but how do we handle it when we have sinned? The word advocate could also be translated lawyer, and the question we want to ask this morning briefly is to ask the question, what do we want in a good lawyer? What do you look for in a good lawyer? I feel like now is the time that I ought to say, like the TV commercials, this does not constitute legal advice. If you have got a criminal trial coming up, please don't take what Andy says as something that you can say and go and take to the judge and say, well, Andy told me this was the case. This does not constitute legal advice. Find a good lawyer and visit with that good lawyer and get that lawyer to represent you if you have a trial upcoming. But the question is, what do we look for when we look for a lawyer? What do we look for when we look for somebody to advocate for us? Let me give you three things to think about this morning. We want... Number one, somebody who's going to understand the judge. Somebody who's going to understand the judge. Like courtroom dramas. And when you have a lawyer that goes to his client and says, oh yeah, you've been assigned this judge for this case. Let me tell you about this judge. This judge is hard-nosed about this. How soft is he going to be with regard to the law? How, uh, How how?" Likely is it going to be that he's going to want to toss the case out of court or he's going to be angry with people and hold them in contempt? How likely is it that the judge is going to be uh, towards, the, the, towards the client and towards the, uh, the one who's the defendant that's there on the, that's, uh, that's being tried? We want, when we look for a lawyer, an advocate, somebody who's going to understand the judge. When we talk about Jesus being our advocate, he understands some things about our judge, God. He understands that God is eternal. God is sitting on his throne. He always has and he always will. In fact, the psalmist, Psalm 90, uh, the psalm of Moses says, O oh Lord, you've been to our dwelling place before the generation, in all generations, before the mountains were ever brought forth, or ever there was, or before you had ever formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are, present tense, God. There is not a thing in this world that can go on that's going to remove God and say he is an unfit judge because God has always been there, God always will be there, and God is sitting and ruling currently. He's the judge. He's eternal. You and I had a beginning, but we're going to go on somewhere unendingly based upon who the one is sitting there on the throne. He is eternal. Notice second aspect that Jesus understands about the judge, that he is Holy. People look at the Old Testament and they see God behaving in ways that are uh, bringing down his wrath and his anger and his jealousy upon these people and maybe he'll uh, take Uzzah who touches the Ark of the Covenant there in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and, and he dies immediately, or 2 Samuel chapter 6, he dies immediately and people say, well, that's harsh. There's an aspect of God's justice and God's anger on this side, but there's also an understanding of God's love. And the fact that God loves Israel. God doesn't want any soul to perish but all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. How do we reconcile this wrath and this love that God has? It's wrapped up in this one word, holy. God is holy. In fact, that's the only word that I'm aware of that refers to God that's been three-peated throughout Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts to emphasize his character and his nature that God is always going to be angry with the wicked and God is always going to want to bless and to, to, to love people and to, to ha- think the best about them but God is always on his throne, God is holy and the Bible says, Psalm 99, verses 1 and 2, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He dwells beneath or between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He's high above all the people. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. There's an attitude towards right and wrong that God has based upon who he is as holy. And that attitude is what the, our advocate understands about him, that he is righteous. He is just. Daniel prays a beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9 talking about the sins of his people. And he says, The Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel praying a national prayer for national repentance and national humility for the sins that the people have done. And the word justice or the word right means that God is always going to do what is right. You know, sometimes you're going to find a corrupt judge, a judge who's just trying to line his own pockets or a judge who's maybe taking a kickback from somebody and there's a corrupt judge, there's no kickbacks with God. There's no favoritism that God shows. God is always going to do exactly what his justice demands, what his holiness demands, what his eternal nature demands, that he's always going to do what's right. Notice this also. Jesus understands that God is never desensitized to sin. I can't imagine being a judge sitting on a bench for years and years and years and seeing criminals come in and out and in and out and in and out and then realizing that you have to deal with every single one. I would imagine there would be a hard time that I would have not being burned out based upon that. Jesus has never desensitized to sin, or God has never desensitized to sin. In fact, when he makes a judgment, when he makes a ruling, his ruling is going to be the final word based upon what he knows to be right and wrong and always doing what is right and wrong. God's ruling is final. Brothers and sisters, as we look and think about the God of heaven that we have, the wonderful thing about Jesus is Jesus can so tell us about his nature as the judge because Jesus himself is part of the divine nature. Jesus himself is part of the divine nature. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 verse 14. Jesus in becoming the living, breathing word of God and here on this earth, he's able to accurately tell us who God is and represent him in a way that gives honor and glory to him. Jesus is able to accurately represent the divine nature. I have no idea what's going on with my PowerPoint. I apologize about that. It's, a, it's doing slides just a second ago, and all of a sudden it's just white. That's weird. Point number two. Point number two this morning: Jesus understands the other side. Jesus understands the other side. I'm going to go ahead and turn that. You do a PowerPoint, and you think that's going to make a difference, and then all of a sudden, something like this happens. Jesus understands the other side. What's the prosecution like? When you choose a lawyer, when you choose somebody to represent your case, what you're going to want to know, and what they're going to want to know, is how is the prosecution going to, uh, how, is, how are they going to approach this case? How are they going to approach this case? You see, because sometimes the prosecution can try and pull out something at the last minute and say, well, we're going to present this case. The last thing you want, as I understand from a criminal trial, is that you have somebody that comes and says, here's this. Oh, no, we weren't expecting that. Oh, no. Are there any tricks that the devil can pull that Jesus is not fully prepared for? A couple of things about this to think about this morning A couple aspects of this, a lawyer that understands the other side, the prosecution. Jesus understands that Satan and his career, Satan and his existence is to be an accuser. An accuser, that's point number one under this if you're following along. Satan is an accuser. The very first time in scripture we're introduced to Satan in Job chapter 1, you know what he's doing? Is Job is there and Job is living a righteous life. And as Satan is there and before the throne of God, he came and he was wandering to and fro on the earth. God says, where you been? He says, I've been wandering to and fro on the earth. He says, well, have you considered my servant Job? He says, does Job serve you for nothing? I tell you what, God, you take away his livelihood, you take away his possessions, you take away his stuff, and he's going to curse you to his face. What's he doing there in Job chapter 1? He's accusing God of something. Job seems to be the oldest book in our Bible If you go to the latest written book in our Bible, which is probably the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 tells us something about our adversary, the devil, the accuser, the great red dragon, as he says there in Revelation chapter 12, and he says he's the one who is accusing our brethren day and night before the throne of God. Satan makes his job to point the finger at you and say, God, look, you see Andy down there? Andy's sinning and he's not doing what's right he makes everything that he does about accusing us satan is also skilled satan is also skilled he is not new at this prosecution thing in fact second corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 says that we don't want Satan to take advantage of us. That's kind of what we're talking about. We don't want to have somebody that's going to throw out a, an 11th hour surprise. We don't want somebody that's going to throw out something that, the, that our, our defense is not prepared for. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, we are not ignorant of his devices. In fact, same book, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14 says, Satan himself is able to transform himself into an angel of light. You know what that tells me? He's skilled at what he does. He's skilled in whenever he makes, accusations against us. You know what else I know about Satan? Is that Satan is able to prove his case 100% right. Satan is able to prove his case against us. Satan has boxes and boxes upon you, about you, and about me. And as we're there in this trial, in this courtroom, we can look over there and we can see all of the evidence of the times where we spoke in haste, where we spoke in anger, where we spoke and we said something that we shouldn't have said, where we thought something that we shouldn't have said, uh, thought something that we shouldn't have thought, and we did something that we shouldn't have done, or we didn't do something that we should have done. And Satan has all those things lined up there against us, and you know what the other thing is about him? He's 100% Right. Prosecution can prove his case. And he's absolutely right about every single one of us. Two scriptures to write down Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is none righteous. No, not one. The same chapter, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sometimes take that fall and we turn it into past tense. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what the truth is? I still fall short of the glory of God. You still fall short of the glory of God. It's it's present tense, but it's also going to be something that if God allows me to live another 50 years, it's going to go on where I'm still going to fall short of his glory. And every single time there's somebody there that's accusing me and saying, aha, God, that servant of yours, he can't live it. I win. That's kind of a depressing thought, isn't it? You're going into a trial where the evidence is all stacked against you, and you know it's just a matter of the fact that you have to wait for a time when the judge is going to say guilty, but but Jesus can render the accuser powerless. Jesus can render Satan, our accuser, powerless. That's a wonderful thing to think about and a wonderful thought about our advocate. Because based upon all the evidence and all the testimony and everything that he's got against us, Jesus can still take that testimony and he can render that powerless. How does he do that? I'll leave that question for you to think about just for a moment as we get to point number three. What do we look for in a good lawyer? We look for somebody who understands his client. Who understands his client. We want somebody who's going to understand who we are and to be able to represent us accurately before the God of heaven. How does he do that? First thing is what an advocate does is he speaks for us. He speaks for us. He speaks on behalf of us. And he does so because that's what he came to do. The fact that whenever he came and he dwelt among us, the Bible says that uh, the prophecy before Jesus was born, Behold, you shall, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. And he came so that he could be our advocate and so he could speak for us. But the other thing he does, secondly, is he identifies with us he identifies with us god with us i heard a story from a trial once about a man who was representing a family and the young daughter was 14 years old and she was 14 years old and she had to go in they had to go in and do some uh, some surgery in her head and they ended up cutting her optic nerve which effectively meant that she was blind from the age of 14 on and the lawyer, as he was getting to the point where he was uh, assessing damages and really wanting to convey to, to the court uh, the courtroom scene how, how much it had been done, he said, here's what I want you to do, um, or here's what I want to do. He went to the family, he said, I would like to come and spend the night with you just to be able to observe your family. They said, okay, that's fine. The girl got off the bus about 3.30 and she had her stick and her cane and her dark glasses and she walked into the house and she grunted a hello to her dad. And she immediately went upstairs, put her bag away, came back downstairs and walked out into the driveway and sat down in the car. And the lawyer observed from the house and he's just watching this young lady and he's watching her turn around and she's laughing and she's, she's uh, mocking, steering the car. And, and he asked the dad, he said, what is she doing? He said, she's imagining what it's like to drive. And she's imagining what it's like to have her friends that she used to have there in the back seat and next to her as she's driving around town. You have something that's heart pulling, heart tugging, tugs at the heartstrings, and that lawyer knew exactly how he could represent and how he could effectively show the damage that had been caused. Friends, Jesus didn't come to spend a night in your house. He came to observe your life and my life and say, I get it. And then turn his face to the heavenly father and be able to say, God, I get it. When Andy's tempted, this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like. This is what happens. And I get it. I know how hard that temptation is to resist, and I know how, how difficult it is to, to, to deal with that because, God, I've lived it. Father, I've lived it. The Bible tells us that he was at all points tempted just like we are, and yet without sin. Are you getting the answer to the question of how is he able to render the accusers' accusations against us powerless? He was tempted just like we are, except without sin. I appreciate the fact that our advocate continues with us. He continues with us. This is number three if you're keeping, keeping track. He continues with us. I wonder if there's ever a time in a criminal trial where the defense lawyer is just like, I don't know what else I can do for this guy. I don't know what else I can say I would give up in a moment if I knew that it wasn't going to result in, uh, in uh, unfavorable consequences. I just want to give up on this client. I don't want to represent him anymore. I just don't want to represent her anymore because she's just a disappointment from one end to the other. It's a losing case. Jesus continues with us. Even though God has told you, I don't want you to sin And I have to come back continually to him and say, Father, I've sinned. Father, I've done what's displeasing in your sight. And Jesus, there at the right hand of God as my advocate, continually says, God, I know what it's like. He's mine. She's mine. He continues with us. Here's the real kicker and the answer to the question that I posed to you just a moment ago. Jesus bore the punishment for us. Look back at your Bible at verse 2 of 1 John chapter 2. The Bible says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who himself is our propitiation. That word is a fancy word that just simply means this. He took the punishment that you were so deserving of And he took that wrath and that punishment upon himself so that God could look at you and say, the debt has been paid. The accusations that are made against you are now powerless. Jesus being our go-between, our mediator, as the book of Hebrews accurately represents, but also Jesus is the one that took the punishment. Everything that we deserved in the death, he died on the cross for you and for me. Everything that you deserved and the punishment of death for the sin that you've committed and all the sins that you're going to commit if God allows your life to go on any time after this, Jesus took those things on himself. He bore that for Himself or on himself so that God could look at you and say, you're a perfect 10 in the eyes of the law. You are justified. You are righteous. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could be in the righteousness of God in him. Jesus bore that for us. But the wonderful thing about that is that it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus bore that sin for you as well, even if you're outside him. Notice the rest of verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but how does the rest of it go? For the entire world. You know what that means? Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, your sons, your daughters, all of those people have this wonderful, perfect lawyer that's ready to represent them and they're ready to take their sin and bear it again on the cross so that they can be forgiven. And they have the opportunity to have the forgiveness of their sins and to be able to stand before the judge to where he looks at them and says, I see that you've got my son's blood covering you. I see that you are righteous in the eyes of the law. Therefore, you're not going to be subject to the wrath of this court. Jesus is the perfect advocate. And you know what the wonderful thing about that is? Folks, he only takes guilty cases. He only takes guilty cases where the court can prove 100% that that person's guilty. Sometimes we treat ourselves like what we just mentioned from chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 4. That we can say, oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm just like I ought to be. Jesus can't do anything for you whenever you're in that case. But when we humbly say, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, like Peter did in Luke chapter 5, when we humbly and honestly evaluate ourselves and say, I am guilty in the eyes of God, that's the opportunity that Jesus can make a difference in who you are, in getting God to declare you righteous, not because he subverted the laws of justice, but he has completely fulfilled the laws of justice by taking that punishment on himself and not leaving it for you to bear. Friends, the blessings doesn't end there. It's not just about being declared not guilty. It's also about gaining the favor of God. And the fact that God doesn't just say, okay, you're not gonna be punished for what you've done, but instead what God is also going to do through Jesus is give you the riches that you absolutely don't deserve. He's going to give you the blessing of going to heaven at the end of your life. He's going to give you blessings here and now. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. John chapter 10 and verse 10. Do you have that life that you're living with confidence and with hope that even though things may get really bad here on earth, even though things may get really horrible in your own personal life, I have this blessed assurance that my advocate is still pleading on my behalf, turning and facing the Father and saying, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Father, she's not perfect, but my blood is covering her. Father, he's not perfect, he's mine. I'm pleading on his behalf. There is a tremendous blessing in having Jesus as our advocate. We started off with the question, what do you look for in a good lawyer? The question I want to end with now is, do you have a good lawyer? Because the Bible tells us there is appointed a man once to die and after that the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 Bible tells us that we will all stand before the judgment bar of God, that we may receive the things that are done in the body, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. There's coming a day where you are going to stand before God, and the question is, who's going to stand with you? It can't be Mom or dad. It can't be brothers or sisters. It can't be friends or cousins. It can't be uncles. It can't be your preacher. It can't be anybody else that's going to make a lasting difference other than Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who paid your debt and the one who gave you the riches and glory of heaven. And the question is, will you put your trust in him now? Will you put your trust in him now? How do I put my trust in him? Jesus would say, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Those are his words Listen. When you get a good lawyer, or when you listen to a good lawyer, you are wise if you take his advice. You are wise if you take his counsel. And here's the counsel: the one that absolutely, with 100% knowledge, knows the judge, knows the uh, knows the prosecution, knows you, and says, "This is what you need to do." When those disciples on Pentecost asked the question, "Peter, we know that we crucified Jesus. We know we've got this sin on our hands. What do we do?" Peter didn't say, "Say a prayer." Peter said, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. The question is, will you follow the lawyer's advice? The only way that you're ever going to stand justified before God is by his blood. Thank you for your kind attention this morning. We're going to issue an invitation at this time. And if you are subject, that is, you are ready to obey the gospel. You're ready to put Christ on in baptism and have him speak for you as your advocate, as your lawyer before God. He is more than willing to do that, and we are more than willing to assist you. Maybe as a Christian this morning that's present here in this assembly, you haven't been living the way that you ought to. Maybe you've been saying that you don't have any sin that you need to repent of. Maybe you've been behaving and saying, well, I know him, and I'm, uh, I, I know Jesus, and I know God, and I'm, I'm walking in the light when you're really walking in darkness. Maybe you're a person that thinks you're flawlessly perfect, and you have nothing to repent of. That's something to repent of. <laughs> Is there any way that we as a Christian family can help you and encourage you? What a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful thing to think about. Jesus, our advocate. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.